I've titled this morning's message, The Dialogue of Descent, and our text is Genesis 2.25 through to Genesis 3, verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord as we consider together God's word. Genesis 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. Let's pray and ask that God speaks to us through his word. Father, we come to your word this Lord's Day with a corporate sense of fear and trembling. For this is the word of God. And before us is described the entire ruin of the human race because of Adam's sin, which we are guilty of unless we repent. And so if ever we are in need of the gospel of grace, then this morning be it. If ever we are in need of him, who through the gospel, by the blood of the Lamb, delivers his own people from their sin, then this morning be it. Speak, O God, for your people are eager to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The dialogue of descent. 
seven days of creation and all is done and all is perfect. The glory of God seen in unparalleled splendor, displayed in majestic brightness and overall grandeur. Man now has a companion for himself, one after the likeness of God, just like he is. And this companion in so many ways, just like he himself was. A companion in which he delights and with whom he can now share the beauty and the brilliance of all that God has made. All things in heaven and on earth testified to the goodness and the greatness of God. Everything Adam and Eve could see was irrefutable proof of the power and the honor of God. The earth and all that was made was full of God's praise. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, Romans 1, were clearly seen in the Garden of Eden. And it could be understood simply from that which God had made. And therefore the first man and the first woman on planet earth was completely and utterly without excuse. And even though the serpent was whispering in Eve's ear, telling her lies, the whole of creation was testifying to the truth. And in so doing, the love of God was all around Eve, even though the crafty serpent was tempting her. And at this stage, before the fall, Adam and Eve had listened only to the voice of God. There were no other voices. There were no other influences. And up until this point, God had provided for Adam and Eve everything they needed in the garden and now, a test of their loyalty to God arises. And their conscious decision to disobey God has disastrous consequences on Adam and on Eve, on their relationship with God, and on all who will come from their seed, as well as on all creation. Destruction, disaster, and death enters upon the disobedience of the first man and his wife.
And the verses, beloved, that we have just read, Genesis 3, 1 to 7, are among the most important in the Bible. And why is that? Because they record for us the great tragedy of man's fall from his created state of innocence and fellowship with God to his present state of sinfulness and alienation from God. And the tragic fact is that Adam sinned and brought ruin and misery, ruin and misery upon all of the created order. Yet, in the beginning, it was not so. So come then with me to the text as we firstly see a slippery, a slippery slope from innocence and intimacy to guilt and estrangement. Look again at verse 25 of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. If it had not been so in the beginning, one needs to realize that Adam and Eve had embarked on a slippery slope that led to destruction Ruin and misery. A destruction of all that we see around us today as very clearly portrayed in the narrative of the book of Genesis. In actual fact, we see so clearly in chapter 2 verse 25 that, that Adam and Eve found themselves in a state of complete innocence. Complete innocence. And, and think about it, something that is utterly incomprehensible for you and me today. At least from a human vantage point. And the way in which Moses, under divine direction, depicts this innocence is by specifically alluding to their nakedness in the garden prior to the fall. R. Kent Hughes, and if ever I would recommend a commentary, this would be one of the commentaries I would really recommend to you. I'm finding it incredibly helpful. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, states, as we come to the third chapter of Genesis, Adam and Eve are living in unparalleled splendor amidst the crystal waters. And the green forests of Eden, in delightful concert with each other, and with the animals God had placed in the garden. The magnificent couple shared the same bones and same flesh in naked majesty. Now listen, he brings across something quite profound. He says she, in other words Eve, was at once his daughter. In other words, Eve was at once Adam's daughter. Why? Because she came out of him. Secondly, he states, she was at once his sister... Because she had come from the same creator father and his one flesh wife. That's quite profound. 
He continues, their one flesh relationship reflected the eternal intimacy and order of the Holy Trinity and foreshadowed the order and the intimacy of Christ and his bride, the church, Ephesians 5. Their intimacy was a substantial glory to God as a reflection of what always was and a glimpse of what was to come. <coughs> that, prior to the fall. Now, beloved, what is really important for us to see is the order of authority which God institutes prior to the fall in the Garden of Eden. We see very particularly that Adam's authority in the husband and wife relationship was part of the creation mandate even before sin and the fall entered this picture. Now, let me highlight for you four things that the text presents pertaining to the authority relationship God gave to Adam in the marital covenant even before the fall. Here's the first thing that the scriptures teach us. Number one, we read that Adam was created first. A fact which the Apostle Paul makes clear in his argument for maintaining creation order when he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Adam was created first. The second truth you need to see in the structure of the order God presents here is that Eve was taken out of man as we, as we saw two Lord's days ago. Again, a fact the Apostle Paul likewise makes clear in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 8 to 9. He writes, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You see the order God institutes here. Thirdly, the third truth we need to recognize is that Eve was designated as Adam's helper. A, a truth we so clearly saw last time in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. In other words, the fact cannot be stated that Adam was made for Eve, but the scriptures clearly say that Eve was made for Adam. And then the fourth truth that you need to see is that the authority structure of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 rests, listen carefully now, rests upon the careful order of God, the man, the woman, and then the serpent. Let me say that again. God, the man, the woman, and then the serpent. That structure is clearly revealed in Genesis 2 and 3. Now this is what I want you to get. That structure is tragically reversed as of Genesis 3. For listen now. Now, as of Genesis 3, we have the woman listening to the serpent, the man listening to the woman, and no one listening to God. And on this slippery slope, 
we see the man and the woman descending from a state of complete innocency and intimacy to the pit of guilt and estrangement. Now note something of the text, the structure of the text before us. Why don't you let your eye fall on chapter 2 verse 25 and then on chapter 3 verse 7. Perhaps worthwhile reading those two verses together. I want to highlight something of the structure that cannot be missed by God's divine design. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Jump down to 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loin cloths. Chapter 2 verse 25 and chapter 3 verse 7 enclose a unit. And the unit is bracketed on both sides by the couple's nakedness. But the two verses that make up the bracket are in radical contrast to one another. Whereas in 2.25, Adam and Eve are pictured at the pinnacle of innocence and intimacy, 3 verse 7 describes them in the dungeon of guilt and estrangement. From innocence to guilt, from joy to gloom, from intimacy to separation, from fearlessness to fear, from freedom to bondage. Beloved friends, the full extent of the fall can only properly be understood when we understand the full extent and the length God the Father had to go to to undo the effects of the fall of our forefather Adam. It took the work of the second Adam to bring home to us the complete extent of our downfall in the first Adam. In other words, can I put it simply? You will never comprehend the extent of your fallenness until by sovereign grace you comprehend the extent of the sacrifice God the Father made in giving Christ the Son as propitiation for your sin. And it's in that framework that you and I must approach the fall. Secondly then, notice now as of Genesis 3 verse 2, that we have here what I would call the engaging of a inner conversation of destructive descent. Look at verse 2. He said to the woman, this is the serpent speaking, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We now enter, as of verse 2, what some commentators have called the dialogue of the saint. And therefore, let me just give credit. The title of this morning's message is not my own. I've borrowed that from some of the commentators. 
And the reason they entitle this portion the dialogue of descent is because it is the dialogue that describes the very descent of Adam and Eve. Now what's so surprising about this dialogue is that it is introduced by a snake. Don't miss it. Bearing in mind that up until now the appearance of the uh, sorry, let's say it again. Bearing in mind that at the appearance of the snake, sin had not yet appeared in the world. We are now told in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We have here the appearance of a creature whom the Lord God had made. We're introduced to a snake, a snake created by God. And the text actually tells us that snakes are naturally shrewd by nature. This, however, was a snake under the control of Satan. Used by Satan for Satan's own destructive purposes. How do we know that? Well, because the rest of the scriptures actually teach that. And in Revelation 12 verse 9, we read the following. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This snake in the garden is Satan himself. And Satan embodies himself in the garden via the means of a snake created by God. And watch now, the serpent enters into dialogue with the woman. Now watch at the very introduction of the first sentence Satan brings to Eve that we see at the very outset, beloved friends, a deliberate attack on the authority and the authenticity of God's word. The first time the serpent opens his mouth, he attacks God's word. And he sows the seed of doubt in Eve's mind. And his aim was to cause her to wonder, is that really what God meant by what he said? Perhaps God had something else in mind. Surely this is not quite what God intended. And, and that you need to recognize was exactly what Satan's purpose was here. Bear in mind at this point in Genesis before the fall, everything that was visible to the naked eye at this stage in the Genesis account came about as a result of what? The spoken word of God. And God said, let there be. How many times did we not see that in Genesis 1? Everything came about as a result of the spoken word of God. 
And part of that spoken word of God was the covenant stipulation that God made with Adam, saying, of this tree you shall not eat, it's God's spoken word, because the day, of, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's God's spoken word. All that was made was made for God, by God, by the very breath of God's mouth. Nothing that came about did not come through Him. All of those majestic elements of creation came from God's good word. And Satan now attacks the word of God. And he starts his attack with the most deceitful question. He says to the woman, did God actually say? Are you sure? Is that really what he said? Is, is that really how he meant it? Surely that's not what a good God will say. He's just spoiling your fun. Now notice as he asks the question, did God actually say that there is a surprised and a doubting tone in what Satan presents to Eve? I want you to notice how subtle Satan is. And here's how you need to see it. The first thing I want you to see, that is not what God actually said. I want to take you to the text. You need to see it for yourself. You see, Satan is implying by his first question that God had forbidden, forbidden man in totality to eat any fruit whatsoever from any of the trees in the garden. And that is not what God did. He didn't. Now, what's Satan aiming at here? He's aiming and he's implying a complete distortion and travesty of God's word. What did God do? God only prohibited eating from one of the trees. Simply one of the trees was barred. The rest were all available for consumption. Come to verse 15 of chapter 2. Let's see what God said. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Did you note that? Every. Now listen to the exclusion, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of that one you shall surely die. All of the trees, Adam, and all of its fruit, Adam, is for your consumption, but for one. Satan says, God barred you from all the trees. God barred you from all the fruit. Secondly, notice also that the serpent's question deliberately avoids the covenant name of God. I, I prepared you for this two Sundays ago. 
You may remember in chapter 1 we saw that the generic term for God is being used. It's the word Elohim, which is a generic term that is used for gods in general as well. Whilst in chapter 2 we then saw the transition where the very covenant name of God is used. And the term that is being employed in your English Bible will say Lord God, capital L-O-R-D. And that is the word Yahweh Elohim, the covenant name of God. In the whole of chapter 1 right through to chapter 4, here in Genesis 3 is the only time that the covenant name of God, sorry, in the whole of chapter 2 to chapter 4, my apologies, here is the only time in which the covenant name of God is completely ignored, not only by Satan, but by Eve as well. They now speak only of God. Not the Lord God. Why do you think Satan deliberately ignores the covenant name of Yahweh Elohim when addressing Eve in this instance? I'll tell you why I think this is happening. Because the covenant stipulations were about to be broken. That's why he doesn't use the covenant name of God. Because I think... There was a fear that using the covenant name of God may remind Eve of the covenant stipulations. Now look at verse 2 and 3. Eve's response to the question Satan poses to her is worthy of study. Beloved, think of it carefully. If, if ever there was a time and a wonderful opportunity to set the serpent straight, now would have been the time. If ever there was a time to say, hang on a second, hang on a second, that's not what God said, now was such a time. But our mother miserably failed. Instead of speaking the truth and standing up for what God had said, Eve distorts the truth by being guilty of a threefold sin. And I'm going to take you through that threefold sin. Let me tell you what it is and then we're going to work through it. Number one, she firstly diminishes the word of God. Secondly, then, Eve adds to God's word. And then thirdly, Eve softens God's word. Now let me show you that. See firstly how our mother diminishes the word of God. Come to chapter 2 verse 16. In chapter 2 verse 16, God had said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But now look in chapter 3 verse 2 when Eve responds. Eve leaves out the word every it's a diminishing taking place. And she simply says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So, so Satan says, you may not eat of any. Eve responds and saying, no, 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 we, 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 we may eat of some. That's not what God said. And, and what is Eve doing here? Eve is minimizing the faithful and lavish provision of her God, Jehovah Jireh. She displays a watered-down version of the very generosity of her God. That's the first way in which Eve sins, by diminishing the word of God. Secondly, watch now 
Eve adds to the word of God. And oh, how the book of Revelation warns sternly against those who either take away or add to the word of God. May the very plagues of this book come down upon them, the book of Revelation cautions. Now watch how she adds. God says, come to verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree. Sorry, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now notice in chapter 3, verse 3, how Eve adds to this when she says, now, now she's telling the serpent what she says God said. So she's speaking, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. True or false thus far? True. Okay, completely true. She's stating fact. Watch now. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God say that? He didn't. There is no record whatsoever of God warning that you shall not touch the tree. God never uttered those words. What is Eve doing here? She's doing exactly what you and I do. Parents, for a particular reason, decide to discipline their children as a result of something that happened at school. Mom and dad are clear on the parameters of such discipline. Your children go to school tomorrow morning and they say to their children, so mom and dad barred them you will not play the next hockey match, for example. They go back to school and say, my parents have said I will never touch a hockey stick again. It's exactly what Eve does, yeah? Eve magnifies. She blows it up out of proportion. Eve magnifies the strictness of God. Was God strict in the garden? Absolutely. Did God give confines to Adam and Eve? Absolutely. What is Eve doing now? Uh, is she saying, God didn't just say that we may only eat of some of the fruit. God actually say, said to us, we may not even touch it. Instead of simply holding faithfully to the prohibition of but only one tree in the garden, she adds that they may not even touch the trees, not even one of them. What a blatant lie. God never said that. And then thirdly, watch how she softens the word of God. In chapter 3, verse 3, Eve simply says, lest you die. Whilst in chapter 2, verse 16, God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eve leaves out the word surely and, and so she softens God's approach on this matter. What is she doing? She's removing the certitude of death that would come as a result of breaking the covenant that God made with Adam. That's what she's doing. And that I trust you can see is serious. And so what she's doing, she is taking the power in her own hands to simultaneously diminish, add to, and soften God's word. Now look at verse 4 and 5 and see what Satan does on the heels of Eve's response. Satan now introduces in verse 4 what we would call an absurd juxtaposition. It's now his word 
This is God's word. That's what happens now. Look at verse 4. You will not surely die. Chapter 2 verse 17. You will surely die. Note that juxtaposition. Now beloved listen carefully. The very first doctrine Satan denies in the garden of Eden is the doctrine of divine judgment. And I would propose to you, as then, so now, for this doctrine is still heavily under attack. To a large extent, the modern day church no longer preaches sin and its consequences and well-known authors are writing, writing well-known books that are denying the doctrine of hell and divine judgment. As then, so now. In verse 5, Satan attacks the goodness of God as he suggested to Eve that God was scared that perhaps Eve and Adam would learn too much by eating of the fruit and then that such knowledge would make her and the man too wise, perhaps even too wise for God. You see, now Satan is not merely content with just altering the word of God. Satan now blatantly calls God a liar. That's what's happening here. Satan is casting God in horrible light here. For Satan was attempting to convince Eve that the threat of death was nothing more than a scare tactic that God had employed. Surely you won't die. But now Eve's evil temptations give rise to sin. Because the lie that Satan presents holds for her the lure of moral autonomy. I can be like God. Isn't that what Satan says? God doesn't want you to know this. Because if you eat of that fruit, you'll be able to distinguish between good and evil. And then you will become like God. Did you know that the false notion of what Satan brings here before Eve, he brings before her because in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah tells us that is exactly how Satan himself fell. Come with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Listen to the description of Satan's own fall in Isaiah 14 verse 12 to 14. Satan is here referred to as the day star, the son of dawn. It's a description used for Satan. Isaiah 14, picking up at verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. 
How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan wanted to be above God. And he's effectively saying to Eve, that's the only reason God is trying to spoil your fun here in the garden, because God is scared that you may be like him or even above him. Friends, I think there's a warning in this for us. A very pertinent warning. Instead of doing what Eve did, We should resist the devil by maintaining faith in God's word. Beloved, all around us, the veracity and the credibility of God's word is being questioned. All around us. The church at large no longer holds to the authority of God's word. Pastors and people across the globe are doing exactly what the serpent did in the garden. For they are also saying, did God really say? And then our Lord warned us so distinctly in Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it, enter, in, yeah, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Thirdly and finally, the text also speaks of a slippery slope that leads to a destructive fall. And I see that in verse 6 and 7. For now, Eve is done speaking. And all that is recorded for us in 6 and 7 is is Eve giving action to her thoughts. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed thick leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. You see, we move now from a destruction uh, sorry, from a conversation of destructive descent to the actual descent. And what we have pictured here is first Eve's descent and then Adam's descent. So, so let's consider Eve's sin firstly. It's very interesting that a parallel to what Eve does in the garden is warned of in John's first letter in 1 John 2 verse 16. John writes and he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes 
And the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I want to show you how what happened in the garden parallels exactly the caution found in 1 John 2 verse 16. You see, for as Eve allowed her mind and her emotions to be influenced by Satan's satanic suggestions of doubt and pride, and as she continued gazing at the forbidden tree, it became more and more beautiful and delectable. To her it seemed, look at verse 6, firstly, that the tree was, number one, good for food. Number two, a delight to the eye. Can you hear John's caution? And number three, to be desired to make one wise. You know that James actually tells us exactly what happened to Eve. He doesn't use Eve's name there because he's actually applying that to you and me as well. But, but James effectively tells us what happened in the garden. He tells us what happens when we give in to temptation. In James chapter 1 verse 13, he writes, Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God tests his people. God does not tempt his people. There's a significant difference there. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What is happening in the garden right now as Eve stares at the forbidden fruit? She is being lured and enticed by her own desire. It's not Satan's fault. Satan is providing the temptation here. Verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Beloved, that's exactly what's happening and unfolding in Genesis chapter 3. Here Eve is being lured and enticed by her own desire that is nonetheless awakened by the temptation. But Eve chooses to respond to the temptation. And that's the real issue behind Eve's sin. Now what about Adam? Where does Adam fit into this picture? I mean, Eve sinned first. Eve took of the fruit first. But I want to show you that Adam is nowhere in the scriptures excused from his sinful actions and its consequences. The narrative tells us here in verse 6, she took of its fruit, so Eve took of its fruit and she ate. Then she also gave some to her husband. Interestingly, note now, who was with her? He was quiet in the time. Some commentators seem to think that that indicates that he was with her literally even while Satan was tempting her. And, and that by implication, he, he's not doing what he should be doing as the husband. He's abdicating the authority structure God has given to him. And watch now. And he ate. She gave it to him. But he ate it. Do you know that difference? 
God deliberately wants you and I to see that. She gave it to him, but he ate. Now, it would be quite easy to simply blame Eve. But beloved, can I caution you strongly? If we do that, we do exactly what Adam and Eve does in the garden after the fall. The woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. So watch now. Now it's not Satan's fault. It's not Eve's fault. It's not Adam's fault. It's God's fault. And that obviously doesn't please God. Now it's interesting that the New Testament speaks very, very clearly to what's unfolding here in Genesis 3 on on numerous places. And I need to take you to some of those. When the Apostle Paul writes about this in the New Testament, both in his letter to Timothy as well as in the church, to the church in Rome, he does not put the blame on Eve whatsoever for this sin. But he looks to Adam. And the reason he looks to Adam is because Adam is the covenant representative, not Eve. Paul, however, does note... That Eve was deceived when he writes in 1 Timothy 2.14, Romans 5.12, Romans 17-19. He says this, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Now, now that, that's pretty much the sum total of what the scriptures state about Eve, Eve's sin. She was deceived. Not Adam, but Eve. But now, nowhere in the scriptures will you find this term, in Eve all sinned. You won't find it. I promise you. Nowhere do the scriptures say in Eve sin. Now, now, now logically one would almost want to say, but Eve is the one who sinned first. Let me tell you what the scriptures say in two distinct places. Romans 5.12, 1 Corinthians 15.22, twice it's repeated. It says the following, in Adam all sinned and all died. Not in Eve. Therefore, it must be stressed that Adam willfully sinned. It's not Eve's fault. It's not the serpent's fault. Adam watched Eve, and exactly what James has just shown us, as he was watching Eve eating of that fruit, his own sinful desires lured and enticed him, and Adam wanted the same. Look at it here. Everything is now upside down. Eve follows the snake. Adam follows Eve. And no one follows God. And now Adam and Eve falls from the pinnacle of innocence and intimacy to the very pit of guilt and estrangement. From closeness to isolation. From freedom to being bound in sin and in death. And then comes verse 7, which is the bracket, as I mentioned earlier. You'd remember that the scene begins itself in nakedness, but it also ends itself in nakedness. Although the, the, true, the, the two are in sharp contrast to each other. 
In 2.25, their nakedness is a sign of their innocence, whilst in 3.7, the very fact that Adam and Eve now recognize their own nakedness, that's so important that you see it. Let's read it again. Then the eyes of both were opened. So it was done to them. It was opened. And watch now. And they knew that they were naked. Up until this point, they did not know that they were naked. They knew nothing else. Now the fact that they recognize their nakedness is a sign of their guilt towards God. And listen now, beloved, their immediate estrangement from God. What was once an open relationship, rid of any form of fear, now becomes a relationship dominated by failure, dominated by sin, dominated by guilt, and a need now to hide from God. And Adam and Eve fall, and Adam's sin becomes our sin. By Adam's sin, Romans 5.12, sin entered the world and death by sin. All who were now to be born as Adam's posterity would be in Adam and would therefore carry the very guilt of Adam. Adam as our federal head conveyed to us everything that came to him as a result of his disobedience. That's the bad news of Genesis 3. Beloved, this fall brought along with it devastating consequences. It brought along with it the result that every boy and girl born will come forth from his or her mother's womb spewing lies. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 58 verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. Speaking lies. It means that we are born in guilt and ridden with sin. We are estranged from God even from birth because of Adam's sin. And Adam's condemnation rests upon the entire world, for in the day that Adam sinned, all died. That's why Paul writes to the Roman church in chapter 3, verse 23, for all, in other words, all without exception, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As a result of Adam's fall, None is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3 verse 11 to 18. Folks, let me state this morning. That just like Eve in the garden, we so often sinfully do exactly the same with the word of God. We allow growing doubt about the word of God to spawn biblical revisionism, often both conscious and unconscious. We tend, just like Eve, to minimize scripture's promises by being reductionistic about its benefits. 
Not only do we minimize God's word, but we also exaggerate what we do not like by adding to God's word. And then to top it all, because we are guilty of minimizing and adding to the word of our God, our consciences become so seared that we actually feel free to subtract from God's word. Yet this ought not be. We are called as believers to tremble at God's word. Not to do with it as we like. We read in Isaiah 66 verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, says the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. And he who trembles at my word. Oh, how we are to look to the example of Jesus Christ. Who is the second Adam. Who came to undo the effects of all of the curse which the first Adam brought upon the world we are to look to him and see how the second adam threw himself upon the word of god defeating satan each time in the desert with direct quotations from the book of deuteronomy jesus was the word lived the word and quoted the word How marvelous that he who was the eternal word of God resisted temptation by turning to the written word of God. How different things would have been if our forefathers, Adam and Eve, had this very disposition in them that was in Christ. How radically different all would have been. But, but praise God. Praise God for the second Adam. For without Christ... You and I would be lost and without hope in this world. Therefore, the call is for us to look to him afresh. Trust him to keep you from the wiles of the evil one. Trust him to lead you in the way everlasting. Trust him, beloved, to make you more like him by his word. And repent. Repent if you are not in Christ For if you are not in Christ, then this very morning, you are still in your forefather Adam. And all of Adam's guilt is upon you this very moment. And if you die, you will die with Adam's guilt upon your shoulders. And then there is but no hope for you whatsoever. Turn to him now and call upon our Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, if ever there's a time in our minds where where there's no gray areas, then, then it's now. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, how desperately we need you. Our Father, we thank you that as much as the first Adam's sin brought ruin and misery and destruction, the second Adam came to bring life. Life in abundance unto all who call on the name of the Lord. Oh, how we thank you that we are not left in despair. How we thank you that Jesus Christ has provided the means by which we can come to know God the Father as a result of the ransom of his own body on Calvary's tree and by means of his blood. As we repent, we can know 
eternal liberty from the destructive nature of sin. And oh, how we praise you for that. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.